Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of RD in the Inbetweens. Today I'm really pleased to be joined once again by Edward Mills, who I spoke to very early on um, in the kind of the days of this podcast about writing up during the time of coronavirus. And today I'm really delighted to be talking to Edward about his experience of the Viber, which he passed last month with minor corrections. So Edward, um, tell us what you've been up to since we last spoke. Well, it's been a, it's been a busy few months. Um, I had my Viva at the start of October. Um, and since then, I've been waiting for and subsequently received uh, my corrections, which I'm currently working on. Um, as ever with postgrad life, plenty of other things have come up and got in the way as well. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a, an exciting period, I think. And I'm looking forward to talking about it today. Yeah, so um, as I said at the start, you passed with minor corrections, which is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Um, let's talk... Okay, I think it'd be easiest to talk if we talk chronologically. Okay, yeah. Um, so, talk to me about submission. What was that like? So, submitting was terrifying. Uh, <laughs> I actually started to think about submission a long time ago, mainly because I'd spent the last year procrastinating by doing my acknowledgements. Of course. Naturally. And... I'd really look forward to the moment when I'd go up to the SID desk, the student information desk we have here in Exeter, um, and hand in my essay, having done it with a few other people before and having kind of helped them out and been with them and taken the photos of them getting their thesis printed in the student print room just above and all of that jazz. I was really looking forward to it. And then um, the Rona happened. (laughs) Oh, she did. Yes. And unfortunately, that got in the way slightly. So therefore... Um, my submission process involved hitting send on an email entitled My PhD Thesis. Yeah, it doesn't quite have the same um, celebratory moment to it as kind of taking having a picture taken um, in the stu- in the forum. And But... Especially not when you get an out-of-office of, out of reply email uh, oh. in response to it. Yes, yes, because I sent it over the weekend. Um, but I... I mean, even though the the moment of submission was perhaps less celebratory, I imagine the time afterwards wasn't any was a, about as anticlimactic as it usually is. Yes. So, in in practical terms, what it meant for me was not sending a PDF, but sending a OneDrive link um, because my thesis was quite large in terms mm-hmm. of file size, uh, not necessarily in terms of intellectual knowledge but in terms of file size it was your minor corrections would disagree with you in terms of file size it was surprisingly large so what i ended up doing was having several pdfs uh chapter by chapter with high res images and then a single one for the whole thesis volume one and volume two with low resolution images on it um so i'd send that link off um and then i had a minor panic because i couldn't quite grasp what i'd done i wasn't quite able to understand the enormity of having submitted a thesis um luckily i was doing some work the following morning, so I couldn't focus too heavily on that. Um, But it was a slightly anticlimactic period, Um, especially because 
not a lot happens between the submission and the viva period. You're in that sort of no man's land, apart from the occasional email from your internal examiner to confirm dates and times. And then you get the team's notification, in my case, saying Edward Mills viva. Because, of course, you did an online viva, which we'll come to in a moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, what, how, so how long was the gap between submission and viva? So I submitted on, I think it was, it was something like the 5th of September. Okay. Or, or the, no, it was a bit little earlier than that. So I think like the 28th of August, something along those lines. Uh, and my viva was on the 5th of October. So it was just about a month and a half that's pretty beyond that. It was it was fairly speedy. The, the the regulations say it was say it's to be within what three months. Yeah, but it's one of those sort of extra. Certainly, the regulations are within usually within three months because there are all sorts of reasons why it might need to go beyond three months in terms of availability of externals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But my my, my viva itself was on the fifth of October, so within a within a couple of months after submission, even if I can't remember the exact date <laughs> of when I when I hit submit or so, send rather. So, when did you start preparing for the Viva? I think preparing for the Viva actually began before I submitted okay. to a certain degree. I've been very fortunate to have a, a wonderful, wonderful PhD supervisor. Mm -hmm. um, and on a few occasions we did discuss things in the, in the thesis I was drafting them that we thought were defensible but would need to be defended at the Viva. So particular decisions we'd taken in terms of what well, I'd taken in terms of structure, in terms of points of focus, in terms of what I hadn't focused on. Okay. Um, but in practical terms, I would certainly say that the main prep for the Viva actually happened fairly shortly beforehand. I spent the first couple of weeks after I submitted doing teaching, which meant that I... this was. Uh, something external to the university, yeah. which meant that I wasn't really looking at the thesis all that much. That's probably a good thing in terms of having a fresher pair of eyes to come back to it. That's, yeah, we always advise that. I'm hoping at some point you took some form of a break. Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, good. I, I, I did a, a big celebratory uh, bike ride, which those of you who will remember my previous podcast will remember talking about whizzing down hills going, wee. It's It's not how... Everybody would choose to celebrate. But it's how I chose to celebrate. Well, indeed. And we were still in... Well, we were under restrictions in the UK. So it, celebrations have taken on a very different meaning in the last six months. Yes, this is very true. Um, but in the stage running up to the Viva itself, I think most of the prep that I did falls into two stages. The first was learning about the Viva itself. Okay. And understanding a bit more about what the Viva would be and what it would be like. That included a lot of things I did before I submitted, including mm -hmm. attending um, some of the sessions that Exeter's Doctoral College offers. Thank you um, for the plug. That's Thank all you very right. much. No worries, no worries. And that also included talking to quite a few people who'd been through Vivas, both in my discipline, uh, which is um, modern languages and medieval studies, and also outside of it as well. So, so just to pick up on that a moment, yeah. when you when you were speaking to people yes. about their vibrant experiences, what were you asking them? I was asking them to describe how their vibrant experience was, um, if there was anything that they did not expect in their viva. Okay. Um, and also what they might have done differently. 
um, and what advice they might have for me. And I got a very wide range of pieces of advice um, coming back at me. And I think the thing that emerged throughout all of that was you're the expert. It's difficult to believe that. And I'm sure this is something we'll come back to later in the podcast. (laughs) Um, But that was the main theme that came out from it. Um, One practical piece of advice that I received, uh, which I would very much recommend people do, um, is to produce a Viva Prep document uh, of some form. Uh, And a friend of mine very kindly passed on theirs, which basically included brief summaries of some of their chapters. I expanded that myself to make it the thesis on one side of A4. So I summarised each section of my thesis. This is moving on to sort of the second stage now, which is annotating and and improving and um, augmenting the thesis, if you like, for the Viva. I like augmenting. Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's a VR thesis in some ways. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, And I adapted that to my thesis on one side of A4, uh, which made it much easier to refer to. And it's a piece of advice I've actually heard given um, a number of times by academics and researchers that actually being able to articulate it on one side of A4, um, either in kind of prose form or in bullet point form, is really, really important because it it helps you crystallise and consolidate what the main driver of it is, which is often something you're asked to do right at the beginning of the Viva as a a warm-up question, but we'll come back to questions later. Oh, absolutely. And I was very much hoping that I'd have to do it in octosyllabic couplets, but unfortunately that never happened. The... (sighs) Yes, well, I I think that might be a challenge for most people. That's also a bit niche, isn't it? Yes. The other uh, thing that I did, based on that particular piece of advice from my friends, um, which I would heartily recommend, is producing what I called the kind of nightmare sheet, (laughs) which was basically all of the questions I hoped I wouldn't be asked, but expected I probably would be. Yes. So questions about why you've done this or any holes you think you might have spotted so that you can look at that. Um, There is no rule against taking notes into your Viva, certainly here at Exeter. I know rules may vary, always read the label. But (laughs) in Exeter, it was was something I did check with my uh, chair of the Viva and there were no issues there whatsoever. Um, And that led me on to the sort of second stage of prep, which was the augmented or the annotated thesis. Everyone talks about annotating your thesis or rereading it um, before the Viva. I came across a term in a podcast called uh, Viva Survivors, which I'm sure people listening to this podcast may already have heard. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But the advice there was to think of notes you add to your thesis as augmenting them. The point being that you're making those notes so that you can refer to them in the Viva. So you want to make your thesis more navigable for you you want to make your thesis more friendly for you and you want to make your thesis searchable for you. Yes. And that's precisely what the notes were about. I divided my notes into three types. I had a different colour highlighter for each one. Uh, typos, which rapidly became just a list at the end instead. That was much easier. Yeah. Um, danger points, which were things I suspected <laughs> would be picked up on. No relation to Danger Mouse. Uh, and then also... Points for expansion, so things I'd discovered since submission or okay. things that I thought I could say more on if I if I were given the opportunity. 
those were the ones where I knew I could go off on a little kind of excitable tangent, okay. um, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about in the Viva itself. So those were the two steps, really, of Viva prep. Uh, okay. the, the beforehand, the kind of discovery about the Viva and the initial thinking about how I'd approach it, and then the actual sitting down and reading through the thesis again and, and augmenting it. The, the reading through it actually took place fairly late on, so I I finished reading it, you know, in the days before the Viva, rather than like a month beforehand, put it that way. But I imagine then it's even more fresh in your mind. Yes, that's one advantage of doing it that way. You're absolutely right. Um, so did you do any kind of... Did you do a mock Viva? Did you do any practice allowed of answering this you know you said about your nightmare sheet did you practice verbally the answers to those questions or was it all very kind of because the augmentation and the prep document it's very paper-based so i wondered if you did anything so i've tried to sort of speak about my research um throughout my thesis i'm quite lucky to have been given the chance to do that and to have taken the chance to do that in various places so it wasn't my first time speaking about my thesis in in some detail uh, and I think that's one of the reasons I didn't do a full mock viva mm. um, what I did do though is on the morning of my of my thesis viva I I was lucky enough to meet with my supervisor and said to him wait could I ask a favor would you be willing to make me uncomfortable <laughs> can you ask me all of the really really hard questions that I don't want to be asked uh, as unreasonable as you might think they are having yeah. you know been with me on this thesis journey um, can you put me on the spot please and then we'll discuss the responses I give to that and obviously that was basically a chance for me to practice referring to the nightmare scenario sheet and how was that surprisingly awkward because my supervisor <laughs> and I get on quite well so it was very strange uh, to hear him picking up so many things that we'd already discussed obviously there was this is a, the other danger of doing that yeah um there was another practical issue on my part which is i don't that in order to have a mock viva in some respects they need to be done with people who are intimately familiar with your thesis um and that wasn't necessarily the case for me that there were that many people who could do that yes of course it depends a lot on the department that you're in um i would always advocate uh, making the mock viva something you're doing for years rather than something that you have before the viva but of course it is a really useful tool and I know plenty of people who've had one and would recommend one as an essential part of it yeah and I think that's part of the kind of the subjective nature of this you know it's about finding the kind of preparation that works for you um so you've said about the morning of the viva you spoke to your supervisor got him to ask you some awkward questions um, and we mentioned earlier your Viva was online, as so many Vivas that are taking place now are, and I would imagine increasingly in the future, um, the majority of Vivas will be at the very least blended, if not online. Can you talk a little bit about your feelings about doing the Viva online? So online Vivas, I think, as you say, they're going to become um, more and more the norm yes. uh, in the future even after restrictions um, are eased. Mm. I myself didn't have too many qualms about doing my Viva online. It didn't seem to me to be a, a huge change, and in, in some respects it has its own advantages, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Mm. Um, 
it was nerve-wracking, of course, being on my own in a room. I was basically in my flat um, before Nevada started, and I was just sitting there looking at this incoming Teams notification called Edward, <laughs> Edward Mills Viva. Uh, which yeah, was faintly r- terrifying. Yeah, a rather ominous name for a meeting. <laughs> I did have to go and stick a sign on my uh, on my flat door saying, please don't disturb PhD Viva in progress. <laughs> uh, thanks very much. Um, so it was, it was an ominous and slightly nerve-wracking experience, but not as big a deal beforehand as I'd expected it to be. Hmm. Indeed, during the Viva itself, I don't think there's all that much to say about the fact that it was online. Um, And that seems to be what... So initially when, you know, all these things started moving online, one of the conversations a lot of people were having was kind of like, well, you know, how do we support people to do it online? And as people started to do them and upgrade Vivas as well, the thing that came back was, actually, materially, it's not very different. No, and we did have a, a requirement to say this was myself, the uh, well, all those in attendance. So myself, the internal, the external, and there was a chair as well um, in my viva. Um, non-examining independent. Non-examining chair. independent chair. Yes. Um, to say that we did not feel that the viva had been conducted fairly, and that we did not feel that there was any detriment to having conducted it online. That's a very important thing to note. Um, having the viva online did have one advantage to it and this is again something that I checked with the chair during the Bible itself which is I was able to share my screen yes and this is one practical thing that I found very very useful uh, because I was able to pull up in in my specific case I work a lot with medieval manuscripts Um, so in my case I was able to pull up images and to show those images in a greater resolution than could be shown in the images from my thesis absolutely and certainly you know, in a face-to-face viva, you could take in a USB stick with similar content on, and then if you were asked, and there's usually a computer in a room, because when when isn't there a computer in a room these days? Um, you could show it, but much much less clunky and much easier to kind of prepare for and to do in the moment. And also, of course, um, having a PDF copy of your thesis on the computer in front of yes. you means it's searchable. You probably remember I checked this with you when I was preparing for the Viva, whether this was all right or not. Yes. Um, but you can just control F and find a particular term um, and then flick to that page in your in your printed thesis, which I would very much recommend you uh, you, you have. For anyone who's visualising uh, this at home, by the way, I have this on the, pa- on, the sh- on the table in front of me right now. This is what a thesis sounds like. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure anyone who wasn't expecting that um, will thank... Uh, their ears will thank you later. Yes. I believe the phrase is RIP headphone users. Yes. Um, I'm really sorry, everyone. <laughs> so, how long was your viva? Long. a oh, very long. Uh, specifically four hours. Which, <laughs> I'm not... I'm not gasping in, a, in, in shock because I already knew this, which is why I asked you. But... The, so at Exeter, the four hours is the absolute, absolute maximum yes. it could be. Yes, it is, yeah. And isn't it right that your examiners spent basically no time discussing the outcome because they had to get the result back to you and do all of the feedback within that four-hour time limit? Yes, yeah, so um, <laughs> if I remember this correctly, we had a, uh, a two-hour slot, basically, and then another two-hour slot. So we had a, a break in the middle, which was... 10 minutes and yeah. we went through it chapter by chapter 
So the break came after about two hours for about 10 minutes or so. And then after that, uh, just about three hours and 40 minutes into the Viva, um, the chair pointed out that they had to finish the Viva soon. <laughs> uh, and therefore, I was asked to leave the room. Um, the virtual room. This is the thing. People have asked this in Q&As I've, I've been involved with since then. Yes. So leaving the room literally means, in this case, hanging up the team's call and then rejoining 10 minutes later. What did you do in that 10 minutes? Mostly pacing nervously around my small flat. Yeah, because at least if you're in the department, your your supervisor will be phys- will be physically there, um, and people tend to go to people's offices or they'll go to their office or you know th- they'll have people to interact with. That must have been, even though it was only ten minutes, it must have been an incredibly nerve wracking ten minutes. Yeah, it was nerve wracking. Uh, there's actually no requirement for supervisors to attend whilst no it's it's an option yes many supervisors might want to my supervisor was very keen to give me the choice of of him not attending if if i'd rather not yes um i was perfectly happy for him to attend and in fact it was slightly easier in some respects than it would have been if it had been an in-person viber because he was able to mute himself and turn off his video so he was an kind of unannounced observer in the background yes which which is if you're doing it face to face exactly how it should be yes so how was it? Four hours. I mean, for a lot of people who listening to this, that's going to sound like a horror story. So tell us how it was. Well, I think the first thing to say is it was four hours because there was a lot to talk about, not four hours because they were testing how long I could go without having a drink or a cup of coffee. <laughs> Incidentally, the answer to that question is four hours. Yes. Generally, though, the Viva was a a really positive experience, and that's not something that I was expecting. Mm -hmm. It's something that you hear from a lot of people saying, oh, I actually really enjoyed the Viva. All the time. But going into the Viva, I did not expect that. My my pathological fear was of um, major corrections or revise and resubmit. Um, And neither of those are necessarily bad outcomes, it's important to say. But I had it idealised in my head that they were. Um, But if I can enjoy the Viva, anyone can. Because I was terrified beforehand, is what I would say about that. Yeah. So in terms of how the Viva actually went, uh, each of my examiners took the lead on a different chapter. It, It just so happened that my internal examiner was an expert in one of the things I discussed in the chapter, which I know is not always the case. No, and it's not always the case that they do go that kind of chronologically through the thesis. It's much more common in the sciences, but less so in the humanities. So it's inter- oh, okay. it's interesting hmm. um, interesting that they took that approach. Yeah, it's worth noting the examiners did explain at the start of the thesis what they'd done, at the start of the fiver, what they'd done beforehand, uh, which is they'd, they'd met together and they'd, they'd, they'd compared notes. You know. Yes. So they'd clearly had a strategy in mind, if you like. <laughs> Um, in terms of what actually happened yeah. first, um, we had a, a little bit of admin at the start where the uh, the chair sort of clarified what would be going on and what her role was mm-hmm. and asked if anyone had any, any questions and, you know, maximum time limits and so on and so forth. But I was very lucky, actually, in that my internal uh, took the lead on a lot of the a lot of the kind of admin stuff. And as a a way into the Viva itself, uh, she actually explained what the thesis was measuring. Uh, yes. And I'm sure that the... 
So do you mean the examination criteria? Yes, things okay. like the ability to create new knowledge yeah. and satisfy peer review, literary presentation, conceptualising a project, adjusting its design. Those five ideas that I'm sure listeners to this podcast have come across before. Yeah. So how did they start the questioning? Well, they started by telling me that I had passed. Oh, wow. So they did not tell me what kind of pass it was. Yeah, so that's... Again, that's relatively unusual. Um, so a pass would mean you would be one of th- kind of three of the four possible options of outcomes. So you either no corrections, minor corrections or major corrections. Um, and it's important to say that it's it's not common practice necessarily to do that. Some examiners do, some examiners don't. Um, but if they don't do that, it doesn't mean that you've got to revise and resubmit or anything like that. It's just, it's a stylistic thing. It's also worth saying, I think, that they were not saying, as you quite rightly pointed out, that I had passed with minor corrections. No. They were simply saying that I would not have a revise and resubmit, which again is not necessarily a comment on the quality of the thesis. Um, you've said before that they reflect much more than just how good or bad the thesis is in and of itself. The questions about the scope of the thesis and so on come into the decision for revise and resubmits. Oh yeah, that it's it, it's a complex it's a complex. Yes, yeah, it really is. Thing and and it, a lot of it is to, to the difference between certainly between minor and major. It's to do with the amount of time it would take you to do the corrections rather than the supposed flaws or weakness in the thesis, which I think is how, you know, when you were saying about you were concerned about getting, you know, you were convinced it was going to be major corrections or a resubmit. We tend to think about that on a kind of, you said it yourself, good or bad, pass or fail, um, and floor-based model, whereas actually it's it's not about that. It's about what needs to be done to bring the thesis to a pass. Yes, absolutely. And, and what, how long that will take. Quite right, yeah. Um, my approach, when I got told that it was a pass... Um, I assumed that it was go. There were going to be corrections. I always assumed I would get corrections. Yeah. I think that's a healthy way of doing it. Statistically, much more likely. Yes. <laughs> um, and my decision when I heard that you've passed, this is about improving and rendering the thesis, um, was to say, okay, right. My job now for the next however long it would be, the answer to that could be four hours, would be to convince the examiners that I should be awarded minor corrections rather than major ones, both by defending what could reasonably be defended mm-hmm. and justifying decisions I'd made, and also by showing them through my knowledge of the topics and through my engagement with the thesis since the Viva that the changes that I would need to make, that I would not be able to sort of justify not doing, could be made sufficiently quickly for them to count as minor rather than major, which comes back to your point about how yeah. it's a time thing rather than a quality thing. So what kind of things did they ask you? So some questions that they asked me were very specific. And I think that a lot of the time when people are prepping for their Viva, what they want to know is what questions are you asked, what questions are you asked, um, as a kind of what what questions am I going to be asked, whereas actually that there isn't a kind of, apart from the warm-up questions like, so tell us a little bit about your argument or how you came to do this research, the questions are so detailed and so specific that it's very difficult to kind of compare notes, as it were, across different vivas and across different topic areas. Yes, so my question, for example, on my certain 
lack of criticality in accepting uh, a characterization of Anglo-Norman literature as precocious would probably not come up in most people's vibers, to give an example of a very specific question. Yeah. However, the kind of general sentiment behind that would come up, which is a certain lack of critical distance in adopting critical terms. Yeah. Another example of that, um, the first question that I was asked in the entire um, viber was how do you think your writing style affected your argument? Oh, wow. Not that I have to say, that's not one I've heard before. Or words to that effect. And <laughs> it came back to a, a tendency in my writing generally, actually, to, to set up binaries um, and okay. work to problematise them. That's diving in at the deep end. Even though those binaries might not necessarily be accurate so I set myself up frameworks within which I have to work which are occasionally a little bit restrictive in what they allow me to do and okay. there were several examples of this throughout the thesis um, but yes it was diving in at the deep end it was an excellent question I should add my um, internal examiner had also been an examiner for my upgrade viva and what that meant was I was able to make connections between the upgrade viva feedback and the viva Aims. So to yeah. give one example, I'd clocked that I would probably need to justify a slight methodological distinction between chapter one and the rest of the thesis. Chapter one is quite linguistic in its approach. The rest of the chapters are much more traditionally literary. And in justifying that, I went back to the feedback that I received in my upgrade driver from my upcoming internal examiner, um, who suggested that I needed to develop a methodology that ranges beyond close reading to embrace theoretical insights relating to my materials. And I used the linguistic chapter as an example of how one might do that. Okay. Uh, there were others throughout, of course, but that's an example of how the experience of the upgrade viva actually helped me to develop the viva itself um, when it came to sitting down in front of that same examiner again three years later. That's really brilliant. And so what, you know, you said that the questions are very specific. Um, you know, you had one about your writing style and kind of setting up binaries and dichotomies and theoretical frameworks. What other, what other topic areas were the questions they asked you in? So the questions broadly fell into sort of three groups, uh, if you like. They were often focused around specific points in the thesis, so why you characterised X as Y. Okay. Uh, but for the, the broad trends, um, questions included why I chose to cover certain types of text in my thesis and not others. So is that to do with um, like primary data kind of thing? Yes, it's to do with what my what my source material yes. was. Yes. Um, and also, why not others? Related to that was why I'd chosen to focus on text in the French of medieval England as opposed to, say, continental French material. Okay. And there were good answers to both of those. One, one acceptable answer is, is simply scope. But there were also more discipline-specific reasons as well as to why the French of medieval England is worthy of study in its own right. Yeah. There were theoretical questions about the frameworks that I'd used. So, mm -hmm. for example, how I, was, how I was using certain tools from manuscript studies to, to, to look at some of these medieval books. But one thing that stuck out at me was the tendency for the examiners to very kindly divide their feedback into kind of corrections and comments. So did they articulate that 
in the in the Viva, were they making very clear what was a correction and what was a comment? What they said was they would produce two reports, effectively. Okay. And what they did in the end was produce one report, but they pre- <laughs> they've prefaced all of the all of the kind of things to highlight for possible future publication with comment. And then, were they saying that in the main body of the Viva or just in the kind of feedback bit? No, they said that uh, fairly early on in the Viva as well. But so, I didn't know, stage by stage as they went through, what was what. No, but that's a massive hint. <laughs> it is, and I was very fortunate in that respect. I know that's not that's, that may not be standard practice, although, of course, it's fair to say there is no such thing as standard practice for a Viva. No, but a lot of the time, you know, if, if they think that it's you know, there's nothing to worry about. They will try their best to kind of indicate that to you in various ways, like saying, you know, well, when you think about publishing this, or they're not specific things to do with the examination and the outcome, but they're ways to kind of guide you towards, or at least sort of reassure you that this is going to be all right, don't worry. That's true, although that doesn't necessarily mean that the comments for publication are minor. It's worth noting that the uh, one of my comments, if I want to publish one thing i will need to do is seriously reconsider the methodology behind one of my chapters yeah that does not make it ineligible at phd level for an award no no um but it was a an interesting sort of critical reflection on what might be needed to do how and when and i get the impression i'll be using the corrections that i've got um which examiners it's also worth stressing produce they have to produce a written report on the viva uh, with mm. a list of corrections, including yes. typos, that they would like you to make. I'm going to be using this list of corrections for at least the next year, um, rather than just to kind of get myself to the next hurdle, which would be submitting my revisions. So where are you in the process now? I'm currently at the stage of making the revisions that I have to make, uh, with a view to submitting them before Christmas, if all goes well. It's an exciting time. I mean, I'm I'm very lucky in that the feedback that I've got is comprehensive, which means that I can reflect on them and there's plenty of material there to work with. So the report you've got, are the corrections very specific? Yes, they are indicated by page, actually. Oh, wow. So I'll, I'll give an example, shall I? Yeah, by all means. Yes, so, so for example, I have um, on page 22 a comment saying why is the anglo-norman text society unusually assiduous as opposed to various other text editing bodies and then a wonderful comment here very few adverbs earn their place in prose and many open up a can of worms worth scrutinizing the impulse to use an adverb in most cases and almost always an improvement to edit them out that's a very specific comment but also a much broader idea about writing style which i very much appreciated so you're working through the report, I presume? Yes, absolutely. Um, enjoying turns of phrase like that and <laughs> taking it into account to make the thesis better. That's one of the most exciting things, actually, about it. It's not just a question of ticking another hoop to jump through. Um, it's about engaging again with something that I spent four years of my life very close to and developing it in collaboration with people who've read it very closely and have provided very detailed feedback. So how much longer do you think you have to do on the corrections? Not a huge amount more. Um, I've had the meeting with my supervisor to discuss it. I'm at the stage where I'm starting to make the the minor corrections. Some of them I can make immediately. A lot of them are typos. Uh, I have a list there. I provided a list um, in the Viva itself, which went some way to suggesting that there would be minor changes rather than major ones, I would hope. Um, 
I'm anticipating I should get it done before Christmas, as I say. Um, and that's alongside other work that I am uh, taking on at the moment as well. And I guess that's that's the final question. What next? What afterwards? What When you finally get that email that says, Dear Dr. Edward Mills, what are you going to be doing? Um, probably doing a happy little dance around the kitchen is the honest answer to that, first of all. <laughs> Good. Uh, I'm very, very fortunate to be involved in some, some post-doc work, but I'm, I'm exploring my options at the moment. Uh, if anyone needs Star Trek translated into Anglo-Norman French, I strongly encourage them to contact me. Oh, wow, really? I've done bits of that, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's niche. But then niche is kind of a PhD anyway, isn't it? It really is. Um, so you you said earlier on that in the run-up to your Viva, you asked people that you knew that had done Vivas what kind of advice they had. And what... Would you now that you've had your viva, what would you say, what are you gonna say when inevitably other PhD students ask you that question? Not a new piece of advice, but something that I didn't believe at first. Everyone says going into the PhD viva, you're the expert, you're the expert, you're the expert. I did not believe that. No, he does. All. Well, few people believe that. But as someone who didn't think that he was the expert until he was given some positive feedback in the Viper, and who even now really doubts that he knows anything at all, you are the expert. You really are. And if you can believe that even slightly before the Viper, you'll put yourself in a much stronger position to take criticism and take comments on board for what they are, mm -hmm. which is not attempts to bring you down for the sake of it, but attempts in good faith to improve a piece of work that the examiners in all likelihood really enjoyed reading thank you so much to edward for taking the time to talk to me again particularly during the busy um period of doing those corrections alongside other work which i am sure he is eager to get done as quickly as possible and that's it for this episode don't forget to like rate and subscribe and join me next time where i'll be talking to somebody else about researchers development and everything in between <laughs>